listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now bring you Jesus, the promised, promised Messiah of Judaism, with Roy Shulman. Hi, this is Roy Shulman, and welcome again to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around, that celebrates the completion, the fulfillment, the full realization of all of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and her sacraments. Well, uh, today is going to be a special show because, once again, I have the great pleasure of uh, having on the show another enthusiastic Jewish uh, entrant into the Catholic Church, Jewish convert, so to speak, to Catholicism, who will grace us with his witness testimony. Um, But before I bring him on in a minute or two, I wanted to just start the show with a little note, because, of course, uh, in about a week we have uh, Christmas, and this year we have the rather beautiful coincidence or providence that the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah coincides in some sense exactly with Christmas. That is, um, the Hanukkah begins, the first night of Hanukkah is the evening of December 24th this year. The first day of Hanukkah is on the Jewish calendar, the date of the 25th of Kislev every year. And the Jewish calendar does not unfold in lockstep with the calendar we use. But this year, the 25th of Kislev is the 25th of December. So the beginning of Hanukkah itself is is Christmas Eve. Let me just read a couple of sentences from uh, former or Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI from about uh, seven years ago when he talks about the happenstance or the providence of um, Hanukkah coinciding with Christmas, and then I'll just make a brief comment on it. So these are the words from Pope Emeritus Benedict. The Church invites us to live intensely and profoundly the preparation for the Savior's birth now at hand. To understand better the meaning of the Lord's birth, I would like to make a brief allusion to the historical origins of this solemnity. Hippolytus of Rome, in his commentary on the book of the prophet Daniel, written about 204 AD, was the first person to say clearly that Jesus was born on the 25th of December. Moreover, some exegetes note that the feast of the dedication of the Temple of Jerusalem instituted by Judas Maccabee in 164 BC, was celebrated on that day. The coincidence of dates would consequently mean that with Jesus, who appeared as God's light in the darkness, the consecration of the temple, the advent of God to this earth, was truly brought about. End of quote. So what we see here is this this beautiful kind of divine poetry in which Hanukkah, as the Jewish Festival of Lights is one of the names of it in Judaism, um, is a foreshadowing of the coming of Christ, a foreshadowing of Christmas. Because what does Hanukkah celebrate? Hanukkah celebrates the reconsecration of the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, you will remember that in Old Temple, uh, Old Testament Judaism, uh, the purification of man, the purification of the Jews required animal sacrifice, which could only be performed in the temple in Jerusalem. And uh, the Jerusalem, and in fact Israel, came under uh, Syrian Greek rule about 200, 220 B.C. And then one of the um, emperors, Greek Syrian emperors, uh, deconsecrated the temple, profaned the temple uh, for bad Jewish worship, for bad observance of Jewish law, including uh, keeping kosher and circumcision and so forth, and set up uh, pagan altars in the temple and, um, I believe, sacrificed pigs, pigs as unclean animals and so forth, to totally deconsecrate the temple. Then there was a revolt by the family of the Maccabees who conquered or or overcame this uh, ruler and took possession of the temple and re-consecrated it. And the festival of Hanukkah is the celebration of the reconsecration of the temple. Now, the temple was the place where God dwelt in Judaism. And we know that the true dwelling place of God on earth is actually 
in the uh, human soul and the human soul in a state of grace and the human soul af- uh, properly prepared by the Christian sacraments. So the return of God to the temple is sort of a picture of the indwelling of God in mankind, which was introduced or reintroduced with the coming of Jesus. So as as um, Jesus and, in fact, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit can dwell in the human soul again, given the coming of Jesus, Hanukkah, as a celebration of a God returning to the temple, was kind of a picture of that in advance. So I just wanted to introduce that concept so that as we come on to Christmas and as we celebrate Christmas, we might... Um, see the foreshadowing of Christianity once again in Judaism and maybe even turn that into a little prayer that those um, Jews who do not recognize that might come to recognize that and might come to see the, the beauty and fulfillment of Judaism in Christianity and in the sacraments of the Catholic Church. So with that as an introduction, I don't know if that's going to uh, help or hurt my guest from the beginning, but um, are you there, Zach? I'm here. Yeah, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Wonderful. So um, uh, I'll just let you start at ground zero, wherever you want, and um, tell the story of how, uh, in some sense, a nice Jewish boy like you found himself a very enthusiastic Catholic. Yeah, well, thank you. Can I just give me a quick prayer? Please. I just want to ask the Lord just to anoint my lips so that I may proclaim his glory and that the whole world may know how much he has loved us by sending Jesus to us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So, I guess I can start. Uh, just, I'm from New York City, uh, and I grew up in a, a pretty liberal Jewish home. Uh, but I was still sent to synagogue every week, uh, sent to Hebrew school, uh, prepared for a bar mitzvah, all that good stuff. But... My parents never really practiced, uh, I guess, enthusiastically or sincerely. And so for that reason, it always kind of rang a little dull to me. Uh, and in particular, what I didn't like is the tradition that I was a part of, the Reform tradition, or this particular Reform synagogue. They taught us how to recite the prayers in Hebrew, but didn't tell us what they actually meant. And I didn't really like that because I think even then I was just craving a connection with God. Uh, and so I was saying all these intricate prayers uh, without really knowing, like, what they were saying about God. Uh, so that didn't really leave me feeling fulfilled. But back then I do remember, actually, uh, kind of like an experience I had where I was reading the children's Bible we had in the house. And uh, I came to the story about how Elijah raises the woman's son from the dead. And... I asked my mother, you know, when I die, can you find Elijah to raise me from the dead? And my mother said, oh, that's just a silly story that didn't really happen. But obviously now I look at that and I see even then I was searching for Elijah. And we believe, of course, that Elijah is just a type of Jesus. And that really the resurrection of the dead, which was foreshadowed in Elijah, uh, only comes in Jesus. And so I can see even then that God was planting the seeds of of my coming to him. So after after the experience in the synagogue, I actually decided that I was not interested uh, in really practicing it anymore. And so I quit when I was about 10 years old. And for a couple of years, I was actually a pretty ardent atheist. Uh, I guess you could say in some sense, like, angry that I wasn't getting what I was looking for. Uh, and so... I went to college as an atheist, uh, and I always enjoyed having arguments about religion. Uh, and I remember freshman year, two of my roommates actually were practicing Catholics. Uh, and I argued and argued and argued uh, sort of against them practicing their faith because I didn't think it made sense. And so, I mean, in some ways, kind of like St. Paul. Now, even though, I mean, St. Paul was zealous for Judaism, I guess I was zealous for atheism and just trying to convinced other people that their belief was unreasonable. Uh, so then college, I thought a lot about this question about God and whether he existed. Uh, and ultimately, like, 
I figured that God just kind of had to exist, uh, just because I didn't see how the world made sense otherwise. Um, and especially, like, the idea of who I was. I mean, I knew that, like, I had, like, this capacity to know, capacity to love that wasn't being realized uh, in atheism. And so I had to embrace some idea of a God. But I wasn't ready to turn to any sort of organized religion. So I, for a while I became deist, uh, which is belief in an impersonal God. Uh, and so that's kind of all the prehistory of how God led me there. Uh, and then it was the fall of my junior year when God really just took hold of me. Uh, I mean, I know his hand was on me the entire time, but it was then that that was when he really just showed himself more openly. And junior fall, during the first week uh, of classes, I met a campus minister uh, who was involved in a group uh, where they would just discuss religion uh, in a sort of a non-threatening environment uh, and just kind of discuss and try to just uh, talk about God in a reasonable way. And uh, I thought it was interesting. I went to like a meeting or something, but it didn't really seem to have any sort of compelling power. But then I remember very clearly uh, how it was one day and I was really tired because I wasn't getting that much sleep. And so I put my head on my desk and I took a nap. And during that nap, I just had a incredible experience. Uh, and in that experience, I died. And I knew I was dying. Uh, I knew that, you know, there was no hope for me, uh, that everything was gone. Everything was kind of just fading. And that's when I experienced God. And, I mean, I saw God as just being all-powerful and just everything. And that was the first time in my life that I prayed. Uh, and, I mean, not just, like, said the words uh, from the book, but actually, like, prayed. And my prayer wasn't asking God to save me, uh, because as far as I was concerned, I was already dead. And it wasn't even really asking God to have mercy on me, uh, but it was more just like a recognition of God's presence, of how all-powerful and all-surpassing and all-great God was, and just how I was nothing in his sight. Uh, but yet he was just there when I called to him. And so anyway, I woke up from the experience. Obviously, I didn't die. Uh, but in some sense, I did, uh, because from that point on, like, nothing of the world really had any sway or any interest over me. Uh, and I didn't really know what that meant. Uh, I didn't know who that God was. Uh, but I knew that, like, that was where my heart was, because everything else had already died, and that was all that was left. And so after that experience, I guess I just continued meeting with uh, with this campus minister. Uh, and I still, I mean, I wasn't really sure uh, whether I was doing the right thing. Uh, and so I even, like, researched other religions to see if, you know, maybe there was some other religion that was where I should be. Uh, and so, like, I, for instance, I looked on the Internet, like, why should a person become a Muslim? Uh, why should a person become a Hindu? Uh, and so on. And I just didn't find anything that was compelling. Uh, I looked at why would a person practice Judaism. Uh, and that actually, even that early on, before I knew anything about religion or anything, I was reading debates between Jewish rabbis and Christian apologists. Uh, and I don't think, like, my understanding was at all that deep. But I just, like, understood the Christian apologists to be I guess saying something deeper uh, that went beyond the rabbi's rebuttals. Uh, and so I guess it was becoming clear to me that, like, this God that I'd experienced uh, during this experience was actually the Christian God. And, I mean, now when I look back, of course, like, with the light of much more time and experience, uh, I now see, like, how that experience was just marked with all of the characteristics of what we believe about God, uh, and I mean, in the same way of Isaiah's vision, Ezekiel's vision, uh, and that kind of like the DNA of all of my spiritual journey uh, has just been contained in there. Uh, because I know that that's God, I mean. And after I've experienced or seen God in His fullness, what else is there? I mean, there's for me to live up to 
that. That is for me to, in some sense, try to recreate that. But there's nothing really else to be searching for other than to, you know, ask, uh, who are you, God, that I may worship you, as it says. And so, I mean, for a while, when I look back on my journey to receive baptism, I didn't really understand how it came so easily. But now, again, with the light of just how I think about it now, with the light of prayer and experience, it just seems to me like after I had that experience, uh, it just seemed like that was where God was directing me, uh, and I just went along with it. And so I kept meeting with uh, with this minister, uh, and I also got involved in a local evangelical church. Uh, and I just, like, I went to services there on Sundays, uh, and I... In the spring that year, I started going to their baptism class uh, at the beginning of Lent. Not because I had made up my mind to be baptized, but because this just really seemed like, you know, what I was supposed to be doing, even though I didn't really understand that yet. And uh, so in the baptism class, I learned about I learned about the ideas of covenants, uh, and I learned about you know, the Mosaic Covenant and the covenant with Noah, uh, and how they're all fulfilled in the covenant of the Last Supper, uh, which... Again, I didn't really understand yet, but I can look back now and see that, you know, God was really just working the whole time in order to bring all these kind of pieces together. And so that Easter Sunday, I was baptized uh, in the Evangelical Church. Uh, but I'm sorry, I forgot something. Uh, the night before, uh, that Saturday night, which when I look back now, that's, of course, the time of the Easter Vigil. Uh, that was when I, that was in some sense my only moment of doubt. Uh, was when I was really thinking, you know, is this really the right thing for me to be doing? Uh, how do I know? How do I know this is really God? Uh, how do I know that this is what I want it to be? Uh, and so then I flipped just through a book that I had on my shelf, uh, and I that I'd been reading before just about Christianity, and I came to a page about the fathers of the church, which aren't talked about all that much in Protestant circles, but there was this page. Uh, and so I decided to look up one of them. I had no idea who he was uh, at that time, the St. Ignatius of Antioch. And I read his testimony, uh, his testimony about how he's being sent to Rome to be thrown to the lions, that he just writes without any fear of death, uh, trusting completely in the providence of the Lord. Uh, and that, to me, it seemed obvious that that was just inspired by God, uh, and so at that night, that was just what I needed to, you know, go ahead and go the next day and receive baptism. And obviously baptism was the turning point, uh, because as I would explain now, sacraments really do have an effect. And so after that, I was, after I received baptism, uh, I was just really able to cooperate with God. Uh, and so he was just really able to work with me and to work in me. And um, that summer, the summer after my junior year, was just uh, really just a time of profound conversion. Uh, that God just, I mean, I really, that's, I guess I could say when I actually developed a relationship with God. Uh, and, I mean, part of that was just uh, deciding that, you know, I wanted to dedicate a certain amount of time to prayer. And I was just going to consider to pray for an hour a day as a priority. Uh, and so I did that, and that had... Uh, that God really worked through that uh, for his purposes. Uh, and then one, that summer I was in Washington, D.C. Uh, I was working uh, kind of like for a think tank, which worked for the government. And I was just thinking about nuclear weapons. That was part of what I was doing. And then sometimes at night I would just like have these nightmares about nuclear war. And I remember... One night, I had a nightmare in which uh, there was, like, a nuclear weapon set to detonate at a certain time, uh, and we had just a couple minutes to get away from it and escape from it. And there wasn't enough time, so we figured that all hope was lost. And so I was just walking around D.C., just, like, looking for a solid building to hide behind. And that's just uh, when I noticed somebody walking next to me. And the person didn't introduce himself, uh, but it was clear that it was Jesus. And he said, you know, what do you have to be afraid of? Uh, because death has no power over you. And 
then I woke up and, I mean, from that point on, I just didn't feel afraid of death anymore uh, because I guess God had worked that healing through that dream uh, and just uh, just showed me, like, the reality of the resurrection and what it means for, for how we are to live. And, I mean, that summer also, uh, I mean, many things happened that summer, but another particularly profound one was just uh, really just being able to rest uh, because always before that time I just hadn't felt like I was really able to rest. I always had to be doing something or taking some class or engaging in some pursuit. Uh, but I just had never really been able to rest. Uh, but I remember one time I was with some relatives in a long car trip, and I just put on Christian music uh, on my phone, and I just rested. And I just really just experienced the peace of God uh, through Jesus uh, in a way that I never had before. And so that that summer, I think, was uh, God was just working to edify me and to build me up so that I would be able to, I guess, respond to the challenges that were to come the next year, and there were many of them. Uh, but God worked through the challenges of that following year, of my senior year, to bring me to the Catholic Church. And sometimes I wonder, why didn't God call me to become a Catholic originally. Uh, and I think I learned a lot. I'm very much in debt. Good King Wenceslas looked out on the feast of Stephen When the snow lay round about, deep and crisp and even Brightly shone the moon that night, though the frost was cruel When a woman came in sight Gathering winter fuel In his master's steps he trod, where the snow lay dinted Heat was in the very sod, which the saint had printed Therefore, Christian men, be sure Hello, this is Roy Showman again. Um, we lost the connection with our guest for a few moments only, I hope. I hope that he will call back momentarily. Um, I was spellbound by his testimony, and the reason I kept totally silent while he was talking was I couldn't think of um, anything that could that could improve what he was saying, but I certainly hope that he will rejoin us um, any second. I, I couldn't help thinking throughout his um, talking, and I will stop talking as soon as he comes back, because what I have to say isn't nearly as uh, gratifying as hearing the rest of his story, but I couldn't help thinking over and over again of the uh, beautiful similarities between the way God worked to bring him into the fullness of relationship with God and the way God worked with me. In fact, when I first heard Zach tell his story of that um, experience when, as he said, he was he was taking a nap and God presented himself to him and he knew who God was and he knew who he was and he knew that the meaning and purpose of his life was all around God, that that was almost exactly um, the experience that I had in, in my first theophany. And in fact, that, um, again, I mean, one probably the only advantage of not having had the gift of um, being introduced to true religion as a child, which I think hope that most cradle Catholics and, and perhaps even most of our listeners have received is that if you come from atheism, if you come from the godlessness of life, essentially, and then you find out the truth about life, as, as Zach found out through that. And you know how much you need it. Exactly. And you know how nothing else makes sense. In other words, you know, either it's not true and religion is nonsense or it's true, and everything else is nonsense in a sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. but, but now that you're back, uh, let me hand the microphone back to you. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, what's, I think I was talking about just uh, how, why God didn't uh, introduce me to the Catholic Church originally. That's uh, right. And I think part of it was in order to 
grow in spirituality because I really owe a lot to my Protestant evangelical friends, my brothers and sisters. But also part of it was because I wasn't really ready to engage with Judaism. Uh, and there was actually a time when I was pretty just angry uh, about my Jewish roots uh, for various reasons. Uh, and so I think that had I become Catholic while I still had those feelings, I would have just run away from it. Uh, and as it was, the first time that I walked into like a solemn Catholic liturgy, uh, it just reminded me very strikingly of the synagogues, uh, both with the chant uh, in Latin and Hebrew, uh, but also just like, for instance, with the red light over the sanctuary, uh, over the Torah scrolls. Uh, and I think like, had I gone straight into that from being angry at Judaism, I wouldn't have liked it. So I think that I needed some time as a Protestant in order to just make peace with my Jewish background uh, so that I could really embrace the fullness of it in the Catholic Church. Beautiful. May I uh, maybe ask a question, which is, yeah. uh, or make an observation, which is the fact remains you were evangelized in some sense by non-Catholic Christians. And mm -hmm. when I think about what's going on with the conversion of the Jews these days, part of what's going on is Protestants are evangelizing them and Catholics aren't. That's one of the reasons for the show, in fact. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But so how how did how did that transition take place? And maybe um, when you talk about how that transition took place, you can eventually work your way to what's going on uh, now between um, you and that uh, famous monastery in Brooklyn. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it's a beautiful monastery. Um, well, there was just a... I think I was just a... I don't think that I really ever rejected anything that I believed as a Protestant. Uh, I think that I just came to realize just uh, how much more the Catholic Church had to offer. And of course, it took really profound trials and spiritual desolation and even some tragedies to make that really come to the full. Uh, but, I mean, God just so merciful, and that's just, uh, that's just uh, how he did it. Uh, and the first time I actually ever attended Mass was Ash Wednesday, uh, and that was almost just out of curiosity, uh, more than anything else, uh, just because I wanted to go to a service on Ash Wednesday. Uh, uh, and then I realized, like, wow, it's, isn't it beautiful that they have Mass every day, uh, that I don't have to wait until Sunday to worship God. Uh, and so I started actually for a while, I was going to daily Mass um, in the Catholic Church, uh, and then Sunday services in the Protestant Church. Uh, and that was actually, that was um, just for a couple months uh, until I graduated college. Uh, and then after I graduated, I went back to New York. Uh, and again, now I didn't see it then, but now I see how God's hand was just really on that time, even though it was very hard because I didn't really know what I was doing or where I was going. Because God also opened up the opportunity for me to become Catholic without alienating my Protestant friends. Uh, because had had I just, like, felt this overpowering urge to become Catholic, uh, when I was still involved in this Protestant church, uh, that would have broken up a lot of relationships. But God kind of timed it so that I was able to just start new when I got to New York in this new city. And the first, or the church that I kind of made my home, the Church of St. Vincent Ferrer, uh, which I picked because I just really felt at home there with the preaching, with the liturgy. Uh, but it also so turns out that St. Vincent Ferrer uh, is a Dominican saint from the 15th century, and he actually preached uh, preached the gospel to hundreds of thousands of Jewish people, and they came to believe it. Yeah, he was all and about so, the conversion of the Jews. Yeah. And so I can see God's hand working there. Um and so then uh, that was uh, in June, uh, and so then I went through preparation uh, to enter the church, uh, and then, by the grace of God, I entered the church on Christmas Eve. Uh, and Anna, it was just a profound, uh, very powerful grace. Uh, I mean, that was, of course, also my first time receiving communion in the Sacrament of Confirmation. Uh, and... 
I mean, that was, uh, yeah, just point full of the grace of God. Uh, and so then after that, uh, I just uh, sort of continued uh, with God's help just, like, to grow uh, and to really just embrace uh, Catholic spirituality. Uh, and one of the really beautiful things that I discovered uh, was actually uh, a theologian named Father Bouillet. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. Uh, the French theologian Vatican II. Uh, and he actually wrote extensively on the relationship between the Catholic liturgy and the Jewish liturgy, and between Catholic spirituality and Jewish spirituality. And so that's kind of like shaped the framework of just like uh, how I pray Mass, uh, how I pray the hours, uh, really just seeing it as like nothing else than the fulfillment of what we did as Jews. And so that's that's really just been something that's helped to form my spirituality. And then that summer, so about six months after I was received into the church, uh, that's when I discovered the monastery that you were talking about. Uh, because it so happens uh, my birthday, the 9th of August, is the feast day of St. Edith Stein, uh, St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross, who's the patron saint of Jewish converts. And... I was, uh, I guess, the night of the 8th, I was just looking for a place in the city where I could celebrate that feast day. Uh, and I discovered that there was a monastery. Uh, and so I went there, uh, and that's just been just such a, for me, just such a place of prayer and consolation. Uh, and I think part of that is just because, like, I know how much the sisters were praying for me even before they knew me, before we knew who I was, uh, and they were really just uh, praying that, like Senior Stein, I would just be able to experience just the fullness of the grace of God. Uh, let me let me uh, fill in a little details that the listeners may not be aware of, which is that that convent is of uh, cloistered contemplative sisters, and each of the convents of their order uh, adopt a prayer intention to be the prayer intention of the entire convent when they. Pray, pray, I believe, 24-7 before the Blessed Sacrament exposed, and the prayer intention of that particular convent, which took the name Monasterio Edestein, is the conversion of the Jews, and it's located in a quite um, largely Jewish or heavily Jewish neighborhood in Brooklyn. Go ahead. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, that's just been, for me, just uh, really just a place of encountering God. Uh, and Obviously, like, no conversion story is ever finished. Uh, but I guess the latest thing that's, uh, the latest step in my conversion story is, uh, now I'm a lay missionary in the Archdiocese of New York, uh, with a group called LAMP. And LAMP has also just been, uh, a tremendous source of just growth and just really coming to know the Lord more and to worship Him. Uh, and what LAMP is, uh, dedicated to evangelization with the materially poor. And we say with uh, because we don't view ourselves as having, like, something just, like, to impose on the materially poor, but we think that, like, together we share in, in the Lord's gospel. Uh, and it's not so much, like, something that we're doing, but we're just sharing in the Lord's love for these people who have been forgotten by so many. Uh, and we're just, uh, and I mean, in that there's just profound grace, uh, both for us and for all those that we serve. Uh, let me put into words what must be going through the minds of um, a number of our listeners right now, which is, uh, have you have you wrestled with the issue of a religious vocation? There was a time where I wrestled with it, but at the moment I just feel really at peace being a lay missionary. Uh, because, I mean, every day we encounter God fresh. Uh, and so maybe someday God will call me to a religious vocation. Maybe someday he'll call me to marriage. I don't know. But, I mean, I think I've really just found peace in being able just to let that go and just to worship God as he is before us today. Mm -hmm. okay. Should I fire away with questions? Please. <laughs> I've been collecting them. Um, when did the reality of the Eucharist um, come into your awareness? Oh, <laughs> it's a great one. Uh, actually, it was exactly a year before I entered 
the Catholic Church. Uh, so on Christmas Eve, uh, the year before I entered, uh, I went to, I guess, a Protestant Christmas Eve service, uh, and they had a communion right there. And that just made me kind of uncomfortable because I had been reading, like, the Fathers of the Church, and I had been just uh, thinking about, you know, they really say a lot about the Eucharist. Uh, why are we not practicing it, you know, with as much emphasis on it as they describe? And so then I went to this service on Christmas Eve, and after the service, it just didn't really sit well with me. Uh, and then that was just the moment that I realized that Jesus really is present in the Eucharist. And I texted one of my Catholic friends, uh, it's like 2 in the morning on Christmas, uh, saying, you know, isn't the real presence just uh, so true? And he's like, yeah, that's what we believe as Catholics. And so, I mean, it took a while just like uh, after that point just to really settle the, like, did that really mean that I'd have to leave the evangelical church if I believe that and so on? But that was really like the moment uh, that God made it clear to me. Uh, and I just uh, am thankful for the grace that I was just exactly a year before, or that I was able to be received into the church uh, on the same day that happened. Wow. Um, I, again, uh, I, when I tried to enter the Catholic Church, when I began asking for Catholic baptism, uh, the only reason was that I believed in the Eucharist. In other words, I, at that point in time, I did not yet believe in the fullness of Catholic doctrine or dogma, and I did not believe the exclusive claims of the Catholic Church, but I did <laughs> believe in the Eucharist, so it made yeah. it, in that sense, the only game in town. So uh, let me ask you uh, another... Well, actually, let me go back to your to your initial uh, ex, uh, conversion experience, theophany, um, yeah. because I couldn't help wondering... In that experience of God, when you saw the uh, who God was and the reality of God and the unutterable greatness of God and the nothingness of you and what it means to be a human, did you were you aware in that experience that God um, was still looking at you and knew you by name and cared about you? Um, I think like if I had thought about that, I would have said yes. Uh, but really my focus, like, part of what was so miraculous about it was that my focus was completely off of myself and just, like, on how great God was. And so the answer would be yes, because he's letting me have this experience of him. But that wasn't even really, like, where the forefront of my thought was, just because, like, I was just so absorbed in God. Mm -hmm. so, so you were looking at him, but you did not see him, so to speak, looking at you. Um, um, I didn't really think about it in terms of looking, but I just thought it in terms of like being in some sense one, uh, mm -hmm. so I guess one implies the other, uh, but the one that comes first is just, mm -hmm. uh, God. And did you, were you aware, um, uh, after that experience that, um, basically that, that we live forever? I think so. I think, like, at that point it was clear that, you know, we were more than just, uh, more than just carbon, uh, yeah. which is, you know, what I believed. Uh, yeah. But I was not satisfied with that. And that kind of just clarified, you know, exactly what it was that we are and what it was that was forever. And um, so it sounds like you actually, you, it's not like you asked God any questions or that you, you, I mean, you were obviously, you know, in, in a state of, you know, awe receiving who God was, but you did not engage him to find out anything, so to speak. No. And I feel like that still kind of informs the way that I pray, uh, is that I just try to make my prayer just about, you know, being in God's presence, uh, because God knows what we need. Uh, and of course we can still ask him, but I guess I just, uh, I don't want to say, like, I should do this or I should do that, because I know there are many different ways to pray. But to me, like, in just trying to live out that experience, it seems to me that the way that I should pray is just to continue just to be absorbed in God and not to make it so much about asking for things or asking things. 
Mm-hmm. That kind of opens up another. I have a long list of questions I wrote down as you were talking because I, the last thing I wanted to do was interrupt you. Um, but um, you talk about a, at one point in your life when you determined to pray an hour a day. Yeah. And and that that obviously had a had a huge effect on on your formation. Um, what do you mean by pray? <laughs> Well, at that point, uh, I wasn't really sure how to pray. Uh, and so I looked on the internet, how do you pray for an hour a day? Uh, and I found just like some random website that uh, said, okay, you're going to spend 10 minutes thinking about the first petition in the Our Father, uh, and then 10 minutes thinking about the next petition, and then 10 minutes about the next, and so on. Uh, and I mean, at first, like when I started doing that, it was more just like a meditation on myself and like, how I feel at that particular moment, and so on. But I think that was okay, because I was... The important thing was that I was just trying to place myself in the presence of God, and just trying to, in some sense, relive that experience, or continue to echo that experience. And I guess as time went on, uh, God just uh, helped me more and more to do that. Uh, But, yeah, at the beginning, it was just uh, dedicating the time, and then just... uh, going just like petition by petition saying, okay, well, what do I need today? What's my daily bread today? Uh, or like, who do I need to forgive today? And just go on for 10 minutes about that. I hope you won't hang up on me. I can't help. I mean, I'm full <laughs> of questions I want to ask. Um, the uh, On the theme that you're introducing of praying on the Our Father, okay, I, I'm stuck on the first two words, Our Father. Did you... Um, uh, how can I put this? Um, do you now have a sense of the um, intimate paternal relationship that God has with you, and how did that form? Um, I mean, I can say I have a sense. I know that I don't know it in its fullness because nobody does this side of heaven. Uh, but I guess it just comes with time and with with experience uh, because we just continually like see just how God is taking care of us at every moment uh, and I mean certainly that's one of the things that I've learned uh, from being a missionary is just you know seeing how this is not just an idea not just a nice idea but actually God is our father actually he does provide for us and of course there's no moment of faith in that uh, that even if we don't see it, it's still something to be believed. But, yeah, just over time, uh, just seeing how good God has been to me and how good God is to the people I serve with. Mm-hmm. It just really, uh, it really just, like, roots it in you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if this is related or not, but uh, you mentioned uh, when we first talk, spoke that you are a frequent visitor or guest to the Monasterio Edishtein, and I... Mm-hmm. Presume, or I shouldn't presume perhaps, but I should just ask whether you pray there before the Blessed Sacrament and whether that has any special meaning to you. Um, yeah, well, the Blessed Sacrament is, uh, at that monastery, they actually don't have perpetual adoration, uh, but they do have the beautiful church, uh, which is always a place of prayer because the Blessed Sacrament is there. But then the times where they actually do expose the Blessed Sacrament for adoration uh, are, I guess, kind of just heightened times because prayer follows a rhythm. And, I mean, it's impossible to pray at maximum intensity all the time. Uh, But I guess those are the times that, I guess, God decrees for us to just be particularly fervent. uh, and so that's just really God helping us just to establish the rhythm. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there's a question. Um, well, we have um, we probably have about seven or eight minutes left on the show, and um, what I, I don't want to say imagine because it's actually the case, but we're we're talking you and I, but we have tens of thousands of people listening all over the country. Most of them are cradle Catholics. Some are, um, you know, some are Protestants and, and some may be converts, but most of them are, are 
probably just normal Catholics, so to speak, although on the devout side of their listening to Radio Maria. Uh, <laughs> do you have anything you want to tell them, say to them? Uh, any, you know, do you want to preach? <laughs> um, I mean, I think, uh, I, I guess I would like to share something that uh, Sister shared with me at the monastery a couple weeks ago, which is uh, about Ezekiel chapter 37 uh, and the dry bones. Uh, and Sister told me, you know, when you pray for the Jewish people, as I know you do, what you should pray for is you should pray for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. Just like in Ezekiel, in that vision, the Spirit of God comes upon those bones, and what was once dead now becomes alive and lives for the glory of God. And it seems to me that that's just a, a miraculous and remarkable vision of God's love and God's testimony for his people, for the Jewish people. Uh, and so I guess I would like to encourage people to pray for that, uh, but even more than that, uh, because God is faithful, we already know that that's what's going to happen. Uh, that's what we've been promised. And so really just to thank God now, even though we don't know exactly when it will happen, what it will look like, but just to thank God that he's so faithful and that he loves us so much as to do this really spectacular and miraculous thing uh, just because he's God. Amen. That's beautiful. And, of course, that's right, that... that um as I mentioned earlier, the purpose of the show is in large part to inspire uh, or, or um, s support the notion of praying for the conversion of the Jews. And even though it's going to happen uh, because God wants it in some mysterious way, God almost makes himself dependent on our prayers to bring about yeah. what he intends to bring about. And mm -hmm. the verse from Romans 11 comes to mind, lest you be wise in your own conceits, brethren. I want you to understand this mystery. A hardening has come upon part of the Jewish people until the full number of the Gentiles come in, and so all Israel will be saved. So the promise is there. Yeah. We just have to have faith in it. And it was a very beautiful thought, which I've never thought of, is, is the principle of thanking God in advance for the graces that we know he's going to give in this yeah. case, the grace of the conversion of the Jewish people. Do you have any theory about why, uh, you know, why were you so blessed? I don't know. I wonder that every day. <laughs> I mean, I am certainly no holier than anyone else, uh, but just, I mean, for the same reason, I mean, God called Abraham uh, and God asked Abraham to give up everything uh, and follow him into a strange land. Uh, and Abraham didn't actually ever live there, uh, didn't ever own a new land there, nor did Isaac, nor did Jacob. But only 400 years later, after the Exodus, then did they finally come to possess what they had been promised. In the same sense, I mean, that's what God calls me, that's what God calls us to, was just by no merit of our own, but just by his grace, a life of following him and of trusting in what he has in store for us and what he has purchased by Jesus, his death and resurrection. Uh, and we can trust, you know, in the manna from manna from heaven, which in our case is the Eucharist. Uh, we can trust in the water from the rock, uh, which is the waters of baptism. Uh, and God is just, uh, I mean, it's all just by the grace of God that he's called us just to love him and to follow him in this profound way. It's um, incredibly beautiful. I can't imagine a, a more beautiful way to to tie things up. Um, let me just give you an opportunity uh, if you have any final final words before I close the show that you want to want to address to our listeners. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for all your prayers for me, for Roy, for the Jewish people, and glory to God. How about how about uh, uh, leading a uh, or, or a little prayer to to uh, wrap up the show? Yeah, this is actually a prayer uh, that the sisters pray every week. Uh, it says, Dear Mother of the Messiah Jesus, our strongest hope after him, O glorious Queen of Heaven, O Virgin untouched by sin from the instant of your existence, I have never called on you in vain. I now beg you to plead with your divine Son, Jesus, to move the hearts and minds of all Jewish people with his holy grace. Ask that wherever Jews are living, they may hear and accept these words of your sublime canticle, 
God has taken Israel by the hand and has mercifully kept his promise to our forefathers, Abraham and his spiritual children, in all nations until the end of time. Amen. Amen. Well, then all, all I can add to that is thank you very much for uh, sharing your, your witness testimony with us and, and leading us, actually, in an hour of prayer in some sense, uh, of thanksgiving to God and of uh, awe at the, the glory and graciousness and, and uh, never-ending gifts of God and of the um, you know beauty of, of the conversion of the Jews and of prayer for the conversion of the Jews. I want to thank our listeners for listening. Uh, this afternoon, I uh, hope that I hope that you enjoyed this. I hope that this was was um, as uh, inspiring and edifying for you as it has been for me. And I hope that you join us again next week on Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, and that um, as Christmas coming in about a week celebrates the coming of Jesus to all of mankind. Perhaps that would be a good place to kind of precipitate some prayer that Jesus might finally be received as he was not welcomed in Bethlehem. He was not welcomed at the inn when he was about to be born, that he might finally be welcomed in the Bethlehem, so to speak, of the Jewish hearts of his own people to whom he first came, that they may open the inn in, of Bethlehem, so to speak, to Jesus who finally wants to come and dwell with them. So with that, thank you for listening, and I hope you join us again next week on Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism. Bye for now. 